So last week we started our series on Esther. And it's almost like a Cinderella story, right? You have this orphan girl who becomes queen. And going through this book, we talked about how environment is shaping us. And do you guys remember the three different types of environment we're going through? Kind of? Okay, I have the graphic for you just in case you forgot. So we're going through peripherals, what we did last week. And that's the outermost circle. That's your biggest environment. And it includes um, things more that are outside of your control. Now today we're going to be talking about proximal environment. This is the middle circle. And it's your everyday encounters, the people you see a lot. And then to, next week, we're going to talk about personal, and that's your closest environment. That's who you are at your core, and it's who and how you relate with God. So today, we're going to focus on the proximal. And I personally think that this environment is kind of a double-edged sword, because it's the one that we think we have the most control over, and it's also the environment that I think impacts us and affects us the most. So when I was in preschool, there was this little girl that I thought was the coolest. She was about a year older than me, and I just admired her so much. She was so smart and so kind, and I wanted to be just like her. And so the more time I spent with her, the more I wanted to be like her. And so I decided I was going to try to look more like her. Now, she had beautiful braided cornrows in her hair. And so that night, I went home and I told my mom I wanted to have hair like her. And my mom was, my mom's an inc incredible, incredible woman. So instead of telling me no, that was kind of impossible, she grabbed a hairbrush, she grabbed a handful of tiny elastic hairbands, and we sat patiently as she, as she combed and braided my fine, thin hair into the smallest braids that she could. It took about, I think, three hours. I was so excited, though. And now, the braids didn't last long because that next night, my babysitter had taken them out to give me a bath, and my poor mom, I think, was envisioning having to do this process all over again. But you see, when you're little, you grab onto your environment in tangible ways. You want to look like the people you admire. But as we grow in our age, we also grow in how we wear our environment. It becomes less external and more internal. The external ways that we wear our environment are still present, though. Have you ever noticed that you talk like the people you're around a lot? The other day, I, I think I was up here before prayer, and I used the term car park. I didn't even know I knew that word or what it even means. And then the other day, a few weeks later, I brought David um, some papers that he had printed off the printed off from his computer. And without even looking up or noticing, he goes, oh, cheers. Now, who do we all know that uses these terms? Car park and cheers? I think JFET. <laughs> but you see, it goes both ways. Because the other day, I heard JFET use the term by Felicia. And now I'm not sure where he got this from exactly. I think it was Ryan Baluyat. But you see, our environment and who we spend time with affects us. So although there's some inevitable effects of being shaped by our proximal environment, I believe that we learn to embrace it. Remember when I read you some of those titles of um, articles, and one of them was, you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with? Yeah? So we're going to do a little exercise. I want you all to grab a piece of paper. Um, there's a Connect card that should be in front of you. You can fill that out. You can even put it in the, in the offering altars afterwards. But for right now, I want you to make a list. 
I want you to make a list of the five people you spend the most time with. I'll give you a moment to do that. You can write a note on your phone, just quick five people who you're around the most. You don't have to calculate every hour of your day and map out who you spend the most time with, but just right off the top of your head. This could include family members, your friends, your spouse, your kids, coworkers, classmates, maybe even your barista for those of you who get coffee a lot. All right, how many of you have your list done? I'll give you guys a couple more seconds. So after you're done writing this first list, I'm gonna ask you to write a second list. Now this list might be a little similar, but it's also gonna be a little different. This list is going to consist of the five people you feel influence you the most. All right, how many of you have both lists done? Any overachievers? Ben, you have yours done? Yeah, okay, good, perfect. All right, Edward has his done. Come on, guys, the kids are beating you all out. How many of you guys have made your list? Who you spend the most time with and who influences you the most? All right, let's take some time to compare lists. How many of you, your lists are exactly identical? No? How many of you have four that are the same? Three? Okay, two? One, okay. So the, the further down we get, the less and less, the more and more there are of you. So going through this exercise, I realized that although there are similarities between the two, these lists aren't identical for me either. As we mature in life, we realize that the people we spend the most time with do influence us. I'm not sure how you feel about your first list, about the people you spend the most time with, but in spite of all the British words, I'm actually very thankful for the influence JFIT has in my life. Maybe you don't feel the same way, though, about your list. <clears throat> Maybe the people that you spend the most time with aren't the people that you exactly want to influence you. And I think we notice that in the story of Esther. You think of the people she was around the most, her handmaidens, her servants, and the eunuchs. Now, we'd be kidding ourselves to say that this environment that she was in didn't affect her at all. But those she encountered every day were not the only influential people in her life. Esther had a second list, too, and Mordecai was at the top of that list. She communicated with him regularly through messages sent through eunuchs. She sought out the influence of Mordecai. She wanted his advice and input in her life and took the initiative to keep communication with him. He was someone who knew her well, and he, he in fact practically raised her, and I believe that she learned how to have character by keeping him in her proximal environment. If you remember from last week, Mordecai was able to call Esther to a very difficult task. He was able to appeal to her character because he knew who she was. In her secular peripheral environment, Esther made room for Mordecai in her proximal environment. And the benefit of that was both challenging and rewarding. 
I can't help but wonder if Esther's devotion to God was kept alive because she kept Mordecai in her proximal environment. So my first question for you, if you have a worship guide, you'll be able to see the questions. The first question there is, who are you making room for in your proximal environment? When you look at your second list, the list of people you believe influence you the most, who does that list consist of? I want you to just take a mental note when you're going down this list. Who are those people to you? And I'm not saying friend or parent, but who are they? Which person is your cheerleader or your encourager? The person who you go to when you just feel like you can't make it another day? I have one of those people, she's actually here today, and she's the one that always will even tell me, hey, you deserve another donut. She's always encouraging me to eat more. <laughs> um, or do you have a problem solver? <clears throat> Someone you can go to with your thoughts or questions who will sit there and help you process, who makes a really mean pro and con list and can help walk you through a problem and give you multiple solutions. Maybe you have a listener on your list someone you can vent to, someone who helps you process with no agenda. But how many of you have a Mordecai on your list? Someone who calls you out, who speaks hard truth into your life, who tells you you're wrong and sets you straight. Do you remember Mordecai's words to Esther? She had just told him all the reasons why she couldn't go before the king to save her people. She told him that her peripheral and proximal environments would not allow, allow it and were restricting her. And what did he say in response? Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than any of the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Do you have someone on your list that would talk to you like this? We often like to be surrounded by the cheerleaders, the problem solvers, and the listeners of, in life. But what about the Mordecais? Do you have room in your circle for Mordecai? For someone who won't ever let you take the easy way out, who calls you to follow God even to the point of breaking peripheral environments rules? Those who are in your proximal circle should call you out to a healthy personal environment with God. If you're not making room in your proximal environment for people who challenge you to grow in your career, your health, your character, your relationship with Jesus, you need to reevaluate your second list. If no one on either of your lists has pushed you to become a better student, a better teacher, a better doctor, a better pastor, a better parent, a better spouse, a better follower of Jesus, it's time to reevaluate that list. If no one on either of your lists asks you how your journey with Jesus is going, it's time to reevaluate those lists. Esther didn't have a solid first list. She interacted with people on a regular basis who were either there to serve her or serve over her. But Esther sought out Mordecai. She chose to put him on that second list, and she didn't go to the king's palace and just forget about him. She wanted his influence in her life. If you're not seeking a Mordecai in your life, now is the time. And now I want to reverse this question. How are you being a Mordecai to others? To borrow from Charles Swindle's thoughts in his book on Esther on why this is important, he says, 
allow me a moment to pause here and ask you a couple very personal questions. Do you teach your children to stand up for what they believe? Are you teaching your grandchildren how to be people of character regardless? That is the way they will learn it. Let me probe one question deeper. Are you modeling authentic character that leaves the, the message permanently etched in their minds? You see, Esther did not come onto this earth with a sensitive conscience and a courageous heart. She learned it from her cousin, who became her mentor and adoptive father, Mordecai. He knew how far he could stretch her with this challenge, and she rose to the challenge and said, I will do exactly what you have taught me to do. Maybe you don't have children or grandchildren, but have you seen all the kids in this church? It brought me to tears to see the kids get to watch Lucas's baptism last week, to hear their simple, honest prayers to Jesus, to hear them sing full of joy. As a church, what are we doing to model authentic character to the kids here? That when they grow up and begin, and begin to see the imperfections of this world, of people, of church, how are we modeling them a faith that won't grow weary? Have we as a church and as individuals taken the challenge to be Mordecai? I found it easy to be the cheerleader, to even be the listener, or sometimes even be the problem solver. And don't get me wrong, within the context of our inner circle of friends and family, it's important to have these people. But the most important and often ignored is being someone to bring up the difficult subjects. Sometimes to call people out or to challenge them in their faith and their walk with God. When you truly value someone, you not only value their character and who they're becoming, but you value their spiritual life and their relationship with Jesus. The people you have on your list of influence should be people who value these elements of your life. And you should value those elements of someone else's life because you might be on someone else's second list. Your proximal environment, the five people you spend the most time with and those who you seek out, influence the decisions you make, your character and the life that you live. Mordecai called Esther to a higher standard. He pushed her out of her comfort zone. He appealed her to follow God no matter what the consequences were, even at risk of her own life, and she responded. So Esther fasts and prepares to go before the king. If you'd like to follow along with me in Esther chapter five, this is what it says. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace. While, she, while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance of the palace, and when the king saw Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight, and he held out to Esther the golden scepter, which was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the, soft, the top of the scepter, and the king said to her, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you, even half of my kingdom. And Esther said, if it pleases the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared. Then the king said, bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman come to the feast that Esther prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king says to Esther, what's your wish? It should be granted to you. And what's your request? Even half of my kingdom I'll give to you. Esther answered again, my wish and request is, 
If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the second feast that I have prepared tomorrow. And the king says yes. We're told that Haman leaves the banquet that day joyful of heart. He is on top of the world. Everything's going his way. He's set everything up to destroy the Jews. He's attending royal meals. But then, on his way home, he sees Mordecai. Mordecai is not covered in sackcloth and ash anymore. He's not mourning publicly. He doesn't tremble or flinch when he sees Haman. And this infuriates Haman to no end. But he holds it together. Haman makes it home to his wife and his friends, his proximal circle, his second list. He goes off on a tangent about how great he is and all his riches and how the king's promoted him and he's attending royal meals. He says, even Queen Esther, let no one but me come to this banquet with the king. And tomorrow I'm going to another one. Oh, Haman. If he wasn't planning to destroy all the Jews, you'd feel almost just a little bit bad for him at this point. Almost. He goes on ranting to his wife and friends that although he has so much going on, he just can't enjoy it because of Mordecai. Isn't that sad? Have you ever known someone or been that someone who lets everything get ruined by a single thing? It seems like Haman's inner circle, consisting of his wife and friends, have had enough of hearing about this. So they start acting like problem solvers. And they say that he should build gallows for Mordecai. And then the next morning, ask the king to have him hung so that he can go and enjoy his second banquet. Haman seemed to like this advice, of course. And he, he had surrounded himself with people who would just listen. Listen to how great he was. Listen to all the things he had going for him. While Esther seeks out the positive influence of Mordecai, Haman seeks out praise and agreeance of his proximal circle. That night, as Haman is sleeplessly scheming, the king is also sleepless in Susa. The king orders the book of records to be read to him, most likely to bore him to sleep. And somehow, of all the records, the one read to the king is the story that we found in chapter 2 of Esther. The king hears of the two eunuchs who plotted his death and how Mordecai intervened to save his life. This is a pivotal point of the story. The, if the king had been able to just fall asleep as usual, Mordecai would have been killed in the morning. Although the text of Esther is absent from the name of God, his presence is still present. God keeps the king awake and intervenes with Haman's hateful plan. Have you ever had these nights where you can't fall asleep? You just wake up in the middle of the night or you're too restless to fall asleep? God kept the king awake and the consequence was life-giving. What does God have to tell you when you can't sleep? When God intervenes and you are restless and can't seem to relax, what is it God's trying to say to you? And are you willing to listen? When the king finds out that nothing's been done to honor Mordecai, he jumps into action immediately. This is where the text just comes to life. I have to read this to you. So the king says, who's in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace in order to speak to him about hanging Mordecai. So the king's servant said to him, behold, Haman is standing in the court. 
So he says, let him come in. The king's first question to Haman is, what would you suggest I do for someone that I would want to honor? Scripture tells us that Haman even says to himself, well, who would the king want to honor more than me? He thinks so highly of himself and has surrounded himself with people that have not given him this reality check. Haman's pumped. He rambles off a whole list of things that he thinks should be done to honor him or the person who the king wants to honor. And the king says, great, do all of that. Don't fall short of any of it and do it for Mordecai. What? I can only imagine the shock, the frustration, the agony that Haman was facing. Mordecai was supposed to be led to his death that morning, not led around by Haman singing his praises. Chapter six, verse 11 says, so Haman took the robe and the horse and he arrayed Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city square and proclaimed before him, thus it shall be done for the man whom the king desires to honor. What a way to spend the afternoon, honoring your enemy, shouting his praises until his voice grows hoarse. After all of this, Mordecai goes back to the king's gate and about life as usual. And Haman hurries home mourning. He goes back to his circle. He goes back to his second list, hoping that they will build him back up again and give him a new idea to fix this problem. But instead of building up his ego, he gets a different response. If Mordecai, before whom you've become to fall, is of Jewish origin, you will not overcome him, but surely fall. The text says, while they were still talking to him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hastily brought Haman to the banquet which Esther had prepared. His wife and friends have foreshadowed the next chapter of the book of Esther. So now we come to the banquet. Esther had promised that she would tell the king what she wanted, and at the second banquet, it was now her time. I can only imagine that Esther herself spent many sleepless nights with God wrestling over how she would say and what she would say. She is so poised with her answer, though. If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be given as my petition and my people as my request. For we have been sold, and I and my people have been, have been plotted to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. Now, if we had only been sold into slavery, I would have stayed silent so that I wouldn't be an annoyance to the king. The king jumps into protective mode. Who would do this? Where is he? I'm sure at this point, Haman is starting to catch on and wonder exactly what Esther's talking about. Remember, at this point, no one knows she's a Jew. And then Esther takes it home. A foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. The king is so angry, he leaves out of the room. Haman stays behind to plead for his life to Esther. Here we come to the ultimate paradox of the story. Haman was furious because Mordecai the Jew wouldn't bow down before him, and now he's begging at the feet of Queen Esther, Hadassah the Jew. Wordsby points out that when the king returned to the room and saw the scene of Haman laying before Esther, he accused him of trying to molest the queen. In his anger, the king would have exaggerated anything Haman did, and besides that, molesting the queen was a capital crime. Forget about the conspiracy. Everyone could see for themselves that Haman was guilty of attacking the queen. 
and for that crime alone, he deserved death. At this point, Haman is seized by one of the eunuchs, and one of them points out that, hey, there's some nice gallows in front of Haman's house. They were constructed for Mordecai, though. The king instructs for Haman to be hung on those gallows, and his anger subsides. Justice has been served. I want you to look at the last question in your worship guide. Do you trust God's justice? I like to believe that I trust God's justice, but I know that I still struggle with his timing and his methods. Esther and Mordecai did not force God's hand in serving justice to Haman, but rather played their part in what they were called to do. Do you trust God's justice to play your part and let him do the heavy lifting? Or do you take matters into your own hands? Haman wanted justice, and he did the heavy lifting. And by doing so, he carried a heavy burden of hate and revenge. Haman is the perfect example that sometimes the ill will and hatred we build up for others only ends up hurting us in the long run. The justice he had planned for Mordecai was now brought upon him. Mordecai knew that he didn't fight against flesh and blood, and he never trembled before Haman because of it. Haman's proximal circle of his wife and friends unfolded the idea that if God is for Mordecai, you most certainly cannot stand against him. In just a couple of chapters, we take so many twists and turns. Nothing turns out according to human plan, but it turns out into God's plan. We see two characters, Esther and Haman, both making big decisions within their circle of influence. And we see how these proximal environments have driven them to this point in the story. Not only are their consequences different, but their characters are different. Esther brings forward a graceful, calm demeanor, while we see Haman's ego get the best of him. Although Esther did shy away from the first request to go before the king, Mordecai was in, his, in her proximal circle to push her forward. While Mordecai was pushing Esther to, out of her comfort zone and into character, Haman's wife and friends were pushing him out of love and into hate. Mordecai called Esther to follow the promise of God. Haman's wife and friends called him to feed his ego. Who you surround yourself with makes a difference. And who you choose to surround also makes a difference. A few weeks ago, during the question and answer on authenticity, someone asked about the authenticity of the people in this church. Japheth answered, well, they're as authentic as you are. When we're young, we grab onto our environment in tangible ways. We want to look and talk like the people we admire. We want to act like them and be like them on the outside in ways that other people can see. And that seems authentic to a young mind. But when we grow older, we focus more, not just on the outside appearances, but on the internal character. I think the same can be said for church and our spirituality. When we're young in our faith, we grab onto the tangible. We want to model what it looks like to follow Jesus in very clear-cut ways. We want to look like we follow Jesus, whatever that means. But that means different things to different cultures. 
Risa was sharing with me that in Madagascar, where she grew up, anyone who went on the stage for church had to wear a suit jacket or a sports coat. So they would just put it on right before they got on stage and take it off right when they got off. Or same with deacons. Anybody collecting offering had to wear a tie. How do you guys feel about that right now? Any deacons putting on your ties now? It seems silly to us, but we do the same thing, don't we? Often we still fight the stigma that to be a follower of Jesus, we have to look a certain way on the outside. But that's being immature about our environment, isn't it? We want to sound like we follow Jesus, whatever that means. We use terms like Vespers and Haystack and SDA and Sabbath and many more because we think it makes us sound more like we follow Jesus. Have we not yet learned from the book of Esther that although God's name is not marked once on these pages, he is still present and involved? Mere vocabulary does not hold the power of God. God holds the power of God. By minimizing Jesus to simply words and looks, we're practicing an immature faith. That doesn't mean that we should cease using God-centered language or dress respectfully, but by stopping there, we're missing out. Esther did not look like a Jew on the outside, but that didn't stop her from following God. That didn't stop her from building a godly character and surrounding herself with someone who would help nurture and grow that. That didn't stop her from risking her life for her people. I've grown up in the church, and I've often fallen into the mindset that the most important things are looking and sounding like you follow Jesus. I'm not sure, but I grew up in academy, and so for me, Saturday mornings were agony getting dressed, especially as a girl. You had to make sure your skirt was long enough, that you didn't have any jewelry in, your nail polish was off. It was a stressful morning. I don't know if any of you other women have felt this way going to church, but Boulder's so awesome. I'm so thankful I can just throw on some jeans. It's really great. We have a certain idea of what following Jesus should look like. We're not just to look like Jesus on the outside, but be like Jesus on the inside. To seek out his counsel and seek the people that will drive us to him. Mordecai looked past the title queen. He looked past all the makeup on Esther's face and the jewels and the crown on her head. He looked past the environments that were in her peripheral and he spoke to her character. He challenged her to be authentic in following God and to be authentic in her calling. Last year, I had to be challenged to be authentic in my calling. After I spent my internship here, I went back to Union College to finish up classes. And about halfway through the semester, my advisor, who is also one of my professors, asked if he could meet with me. And I was a little worried. I think I had just turned in a paper, so I was kind of on edge if it wasn't good or not. And I get to his office, and I sit down, and he goes, oh, nope, stand up, put on your coat, we're going for a walk. And I was like, okay. And we went for a walk, and we walked down to this little ice cream place right down the street from Union. And he just completely unloaded to me that he was worried about me, that he could tell I was stressed and something was going on. And I hadn't really acknowledged it at this point. And so as we sat and talked and I was able to kind of explain what was stressing me out, it started to click with me. 
Um, I wasn't stressed about school, about how hard the tests were, or how long the papers had to be, but I was stressed about my calling to be a pastor. Because you see, I came back to school and I came back to my classes with all my classmates that I had been with since freshman year, and all of them were boys. And that wasn't the only difference. They just looked different. They just sounded different. They were just different than me in their way of pastoring. Um, we shared stories about our different experiences. And it just, it challenged me. Um, I was very stressed and I was in a lot of inner turmoil and it wasn't until my professor called me out on it and challenged me in that, that I acknowledged it. And the thing is, is that he didn't just leave it there. I had wonderful professors at Union. He told me he had to meet with me every single week for the rest of the year. We we're going to meet every single week. And he went through with me what a calling looks like and reaffirmed to me that I didn't have to be a boy or talk like one of the boys or do ministry in the way that all my other classmates were doing because God had called me. And that was important and that we all have different gifts and that we all have different ways of connecting others to God. And that's when it hit me. That's when I realized that I needed to make sure I was seeking out Mordecai's in my life. People that would challenge me, um, confront me when I wasn't on the straight and narrow, but also to affirm, affirm that calling, affirm me to be authentic in who I was and what God was calling me to do. So today I wanna to encourage you to do two things. To be intentional about making space for people in your proximal environment to challenge you to grow. People who don't inflate your ego or advise you to act on feelings of hate, but surround yourself with people who aren't afraid to call you out and challenge your walk with God. People who are concerned about your character. And two, stop focusing on what you see on the outside. Whether it is yourself or another person, begin the journey of being authentic by nurturing your proximal environment and your personal environment with Jesus. And let God be your compass. It's important for us to struggle through this together, to challenge one another. I told you the story about the little girl in preschool that I wanted to be so much like. But when we're little, we grab onto our environment in tangible ways. You wanna look like the people you admire, and I wanted to be like her, so I tried to look like her. But as we grow in our age, and as we grow in our faith, we grow in the way we wear our environment. It becomes less external and more internal. We stop wanting to just look and sound like we follow Jesus, and we start wanting to be like him and act like him and mold our characters and our hearts to be like his. So one last question for you. How are you going to continue to nurture your proximal circle? And what does that look like for your life? for your family, for Boulder Church, and for the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Jesus, today we come before you. We come before you with different looking proximal circles. We come before you knowing that our environments aren't always the healthiest. But Jesus, I pray for myself and I pray for everyone in this room that you send a Mordecai to our life 
you send someone to us that cares about who we are and who cares about our relationship with you. Jesus, we don't wanna just live lives that are complacent. We wanna be challenged to follow you. We wanna be excited to follow you no matter what the cost. Jesus, remind us that much like Haman and Esther, we have a choice of who influences us. Although we may spend more time with certain people, we choose to seek those out that will mold our character. Jesus, today we don't wanna just look like you. We don't wanna just talk like you, we wanna be like you. We don't wanna just pretend to be followers of Jesus with the way we dress and the words we say. We wanna be followers of you because of the hearts that we have and because of the love that we share for others. So Jesus, help us to be a people who do that for each other, who encourage and challenge us to be like you and not look or act like we follow you but really, truly follow you with our whole hearts. Pray all of this in your name. Amen.